Welcome to the WCA Podcast. Your host today is Mr. Asad Raza. WCA is a product of the Civil Affairs Association and brings in people who are current or former military, diplomats, development officers, and field agents to discuss their experiences on ground with a partner nation's people and leadership. Our goal is to inspire anyone interested in working the last three feet of foreign relations. To contact the show, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com or look us up on the Civil Affairs Association website at www.civilaffairsassoc.org. I'll have those in the show notes. Hello, and welcome to the 1CA Podcast, a production of the Civil Affairs Association. I'm your host, Asad Raza. Our guests today are two emerging scholars and practitioners within the Special Operations Civil Affairs community. They're going to share some of their findings on the near-term geopolitical consequence of climate insecurity. Major Alex Kenna and Major Matt Alexander, and welcome to the 1CA Podcast. Thank thanks. You. Yeah, thanks for having us. Matt and I have been working on this for the past uh, 18 months. As you kind of see in our bios, we work together actually quite a bit, replacing each other in both Columbia and Trinidad. We both worked in the 98th Civil Affairs Battalion, a Southcom-oriented Civil Affairs Battalion. So when we both got accepted to Naval Postgraduate School, we decided to work together. Matt and I both had kind of the same kind of mindset as we wanted to give back to the branch. And then also understanding that USASOC footed the bill for us to attend. So we definitely want to give some back to our career field. Thank you. And how did you decide on the climate insecurity? Uh, a lot of the communities and populations actually live along the coast and the littorals. And we don't really have any doctrine or best practices yet of working with communities along the coast and those impacts on how to conduct civil reconnaissance engagement, civil knowledge management. So that's where we originally started. As we were diving into it and learning two-thirds of the world's population within 100 miles of the coast, I came across a bit talking about what's known as Thwaites Glacier or within the climate scientist world known as the Doomsday Glacier. Um, it's about the size of Florida. And it's actually, it's down in Antarctica and it's melting faster than any other glacier or, or most of the other glaciers. And it's a, it's a positive feedback loop of warm water impacting the glacier underneath causing more water to melt. And so it means more water. So it's melting at a fast rate. And climate scientists are predicting that once it collapses, it'll have this cascading effect of rising the sea levels, potentially several meters. Matt and I are talking about this. Then we're like, well, that's going to cause a lot of problems for a lot of people. It's like, well, for the first world countries, you know, we can find a way to adapt and survive just fine. You know, high capacity government, you know, high threshold population. All right. That's all right. It's like, but what about these other locations that are they're not as well off as uh, as us and other first world countries? Like it's like man, they could they could really use some help. They're also quite vulnerable to other actors with malign and nefarious and intent. So we asked ourselves, is anyone looking into this? Specifically in the DoD side, only as of recently has changes in climate and warming planet becoming more to the forefront on what it means for the United States. So we started looking into the near-term geopolitical consequences of climate change and climate insecurity coming onto this. And that's how we kind of came up with the question. So when you first started working on your research, you really saw a gap in the literature, some of the climate insecurities. I like how you focused on the uh, doomsday. Yeah, the doomsday glacier, the Thwaites, yeah, the Thwaites glacier down in Antarctica. When we first got out to the Naval Postgraduate School, we also found out that our old battalion commander, uh, Colonel James Kivit, was currently the Commandant of Defense Language Institute right down the street. So we talked with him early and often and we're getting some advice and counsel from him. And he suggested that what makes a good thesis. 
is something that's important, but no one's talking about it. And within our initial research, this was not a, a topic that was really being talked about. That's good advice from Colonel Kiva. Yes, absolutely. There. Major Alexander, can you summarize how you guys worked on it? The two things we looked at when we were going through the research. One was finally when the NSS or National Security Strategy dropped in 2022, we identified there were two things and really they talked a lot about adversarial competition as well as the instability that's caused by climate change. As you know from the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change, they talk about how the world's warming uh, is going to increase uh, in intensity and frequency of natural disasters and extreme weather events. And then additionally, the amount of people that are actually in vulnerable areas to climate change. And as Alex talked about earlier, those in highly vulnerable countries as well. So more underdeveloped countries. Well, that was one of the biggest gaps that we saw was that they talk about both, but they never talk about both pieces together. So how we looked at it was if you have climate change, it's going to result in natural hazards, which ultimately affect human systems and they create drivers of insecurity within those population centers. So how we go about affecting those things, it also creates an opportunity for adversarial competition, whether it's the PRC or Russia can exploit or use the opportunities that climate change or climate insecurity causes for their own ambitions, as well as their own uh, regional influence in those areas. So I'm going to talk about more of the model we use to illustrate and explain the problem sets that we end up choosing and then the actual problem sets uh, for case studies that we picked. So first thing we decided is how is competition occurring and, and at these different levels? And Matt and I kind of saw there was nothing really on there that addresses both non-state actors and state actors to include violence, extremist organizations, transnational criminal organizations within that, within those NSAs. So we kind of came up with a term on here called uh, governance competition, or when a third-party actor challenges the legitimacy, the authority, and influence of an, of an existing governing body over a population by undermining, circumventing, or substituting governing efforts. Um, when we talk about governance, we're talking about a person or a small group of people that has that greater influence of legitimacy over a larger group of people. This can be anything from a youth soccer league up to the United Nations. So with that understanding on there, we went ahead and developed a model to help lay out each of our case studies that I'll talk about in a moment. And we call this the governance competition model. Within that, the challenger will always have a greater uh, strategic objective they're trying to accomplish to include anything that could be political, military, or economic, to name a few. And that may be uh, more covert and less obvious to the existing governance. It may be, look more like a relationship as cooperation rather than complete replacement of, an, of a government. So their intermediate objectives can come online to see what's more actually out in the open and what's going on. Um, it may be undermining the government. It may be forms of economic statecraft showing as cooperation with that other governing body, uh, to name a few, but still an underlying strategic objective. So within that, the challenger needs to identify uh, targeted groups on there through such as like how a psychological operations does or target audience analysis on who's best to use as leverage to accomplish those intermediate objectives. It could be a, a disenfranchised group. It could be a, a certain political party, uh, just to name a few. So within on that, once the targeted group is identified, comes those methods of influence they'll best use within the circumstances of those environments to best leverage those target groups to meet those objectives. And they can be anything within this below threshold from conflict to include uh, violence, 
information operations, economic state craft, anything to do with cyber as well. These are just a few to name that could be used to leverage those groups. And so what comes down to this, once a challenger identifies all of these, they have to identify the perfect window of opportunity on here or what Matt and I reference in our paper as the nexus event that allows them to employ their methods of influence on those targeted groups to meet their objectives. And specifically for this paper, we use those climate insecurity factors and events that occur as those nexus events on there. So next, we've developed this model. We identified the problem. Now we got to see, is this actually occurring in the world? And we decided to take a couple of different steps on a couple of different COCOMs because our target audience on here we want to pitch this towards is at the strategic level to include the GCCs. And we wanted to hit a specific kind of timeline of Something in the near historical realm of things that's fresh on everyone's mind. Also, something that's currently happening and developing, and then something in the near-term future. The uh, Syrian civil war, uh, Central America, specifically Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and Nicaragua, and then also the uh, Pacific island chains. So for this next portion, we're going to start talking about each of those case studies uh, briefly, and Matt's going to go ahead and talk about the Syrian civil war. Thank you. So with Syria, just to start, in 2006 to 2011, there was an extreme drought there. Maybe that was the the spark or what really created a lot of turmoil and uplifted people from their normal lifestyles. However, you know, there's so many different factors that you could talk about. It was this or it was that. But it's one thing, it's not to go unnoticed that this drought really created a huge movement of people and displaced people from the northeastern areas which was also an area where ISIS was heavily invested in recruiting. So a lot of the farmers, a lot of people in those areas were extremely vulnerable. However, as they came south, it built up on the urban periphery, which was also exacerbated by uh, populations moving over from Iraq uh, due to the, the ongoing war. So you had a couple different factors playing there, but the drought was one of the most extreme droughts. And I think it was over a, a century in the region, so it shouldn't go overlooked, which is what led to a lot of those grievances and, and ultimately led to, to some of the, the issues that occurred within the, the country. And then that played out into the role which we have today, which is you have multiple different external state actors that are in there, as well as non-state actors that have created this quagmire that we don't see any really end in sight, and it's still ongoing today. But with that, that's pretty much like the Syrian case in a nutshell. And I'll hand it over to Alex to talk about the Central America piece. Within Central America, it's kind of within between a rock and a hard place. I'm concerned with the issues of climate and security. Over on the Pacific side, it's known as the dry corridor. For the last couple of decades, it's been getting severe drought has been occurring off the Pacific side and the coast, increasing every year to the point where the rainy seasons are projected from being twice a year to only once a year for the region. And for an area that's predominantly based on agriculture and already having existing issues with uh, non-state actors such as the MS-13 and Barrio 18, they've already had opportunities of like low capacity government, low threshold population. Now, compile this on top with getting hit on the other side on the eastern coast with the warming oceans of both the Atlantic and the Caribbean and the increased strength and frequency of tropical storms and hurricanes. With the warming oceans, it's almost like jet fuel to a hurricane and it provides them get more strength. As we all recently remember here in 2020 with the hurricanes Iota and Eta, both back to back impacting the coastal side of Honduras and uh, Nicaragua. So 
there's already been a historical issue of immigration out of those regions and heading up towards our southern borders. Uh, issues have been dealing with for several administrations and with the issues of MS-13 and Barrio 18 already having governance competitions on those areas in this cycle of immigration and deportation and, and both those transnational criminal organizations being of origin of the United States um, have only been growing in strength in the region in, in the last several years. So with them in governance competition, they've been focusing on with their goals of continuing the freedom of financing and operations and don't necessarily want to take over the government. So with all these issues on top of each other, this leaves perfect opportunity for external state actors, which they have been coming into the region and providing what may seem as assistance to those governments that are at low capacity and the thresholds of those populations are quite low, or of course, for their own malign reasons. As we've seen, uh, China has been practicing economic statecraft for over the past 20 years within Latin America and the Southcom AOR, starting off originally with only probably about one country. In about 2000, 2001, it's now just over 21, maybe 22 countries. As we've recently seen in the news in the last five years, Honduras, uh, Nicaragua, and El Salvador have all renounced the recognition of Taiwan. So as we can see here, based on the economic statecraft with state-owned enterprises and applying these economic aid packages to these countries in the region, they're gaining more political power within a global sphere. They're also gaining political, military, and economic placement throughout the Western Hemisphere in their own backyard. For Russia, they've been gaining also influence through military sales and training, specifically in Nicaragua, with the authoritarian president of Nicaragua, uh, Daniel Ortega, uh, receiving uh, military equipment and training uh, from Russia. So Russia, at the very least now, has influence within our region and access and placement in Venezuela, Cuba, and in Nicaragua. So emerging challenges happen in those regions. I'm going to go ahead and hand it back over to Matt, and he's going to talk about the emerging challenges in the Pacific. So the last case study we had was the Pacific Island countries. And what really sparked it, honestly, there's so many different places in, in Asia. We wanted to do something that was Indo-PACOM focused. And there's so many different locations that you could select from. One place that actually sparked it was when the Solomon Islands had the bilateral security agreement with the PRC uh, back during April of 2022. So that shifted our focus. You know, what's going on here in the Pacific Island countries? Their number one threat is in a specific country, a non-state actor, a state actor. It is actually climate change. Most of these countries are very concerned with what's going on with rising sea levels, as well as the potential for an increase in natural disasters and typhoons. They're concerned with what climate change could bring. And as the world warms, that's one of their biggest focus areas. So they've created the Pacific Island Forum focused on those security challenges. And one example of this and how we can see where a third-party actor, as in the PRC, is trying to exploit this for their own opportunities and gains is they're using, for example, the Global Development Initiative, which is sort of a very vague term that came about in 2021. With that, they've created a China Pacific Island Countries Climate Action Cooperation Center that's in, I believe, Shanghai or Beijing. But what they're doing there is bringing over partners from Pacific Island countries to work with the PRC in China to mitigate some of these circumstances with climate change. So it's giving them a foothold in that second to third island chain. That's extremely important as far as how things could potentially play out as tensions heighten between the US and China. And given this location, you know, it represents a gateway to Asia and could play a pivotal role as 
any movement across the Pacific. So that's sort of what we looked at with the Pacific Island countries and how you have that competition or adversarial competition between what the PRC is trying to do to exploit potential partners. Also, as Alex was talking about, some of the recognition for Taiwan, the nations that still do, and a lot of those are in Latin America. And the other half, uh, the majority are in these Pacific Island countries as they try to shift focus, which did just happen recently. Um, I think it was last year with, with Fiji. So there is some concern with, with you know, how that could play out as they try to chip away at those countries that still recognize Taiwan. So that's really all three of our case studies in a nutshell. Matt and Alex, a lot of information there. I really appreciate it. And I applaud you guys for your research. I wanted to ask you, were there any limitations on your studies? First of all, Matt and I are not climate scientists by trade or by training. Um, I actually want to give a shout out to our advisor, Kristen Fletcher at the Naval Postgraduate School, who is one of our two advisors, who is more of an expert on climate insecurity and on energy security. She really was like that guiding light and points the right direction to publications and education on it. So overall, just kind of looking at climate insecurity through the lens of uh, DOD and understanding the political, the economic and the civil domain as it is. It's anyone who's looked into it. It's very wide, deep and complex. So I want to put out there's disclaimer, then we understand that we could not cover every single variable. You know, especially with the time constraints that you have. But I do like your approach towards it, not going into a single case study and deep dive into one, but actually identifying three different case studies with three different types of threats, which I think opens a conversation for future research to continue going on within the climate insecurity, specifically looking through the OD lens. So thank you. So can you discuss a little bit about your findings and what gaps you guys identified? Yeah. So like one of the biggest gaps that we we discovered was really just the fact that there's all this, the conversation that was mentioned sort of before is, you know, between the national security strategy and then also the um, adversarial competition, how we're talking about climate change and climate instability. Um, and then we're talking about governance competition or adversarial competition. But is there an interaction there? How do they interact? And that sort of led us to the findings that we discovered from all the three case studies, which were that essentially destructive climate events, they can serve as a threat multiplier that climate insecurity uh, increases the chance of governance competition or adversarial competition. And then also climate insecurity provides that opportunity for a state or a non-state actor that they can exploit a certain situation or increase their own influence into a certain situation. And then lastly, it's that it creates a field for the U.S. to advance our own influence if we can. Additionally, on there, we've through our own strategies and what publications from DOD, there is a, a current gap in US DOD strategy. The climate adaptation plan by DOD was published in 2021. And of course, shortly afterwards, all of the um, service branches also published their own uh, climate uh, strategy. Now, it all falls back to the higher the US government and their priorities. And a lot of it was focused on domestic issues and having a more resilient force to a changing climate environment to include installations, uh, naval ports and yards and airfields, be able to be more resilient within a changing uh, climate environment. Also for organizations and operations to still occur in a more climate challenging environment and also reduction in the DOD's contribution into carbon emissions and greenhouse gases and such. So that's why you see a lot of 
the each of service components talking about within their own fleets of vehicles, aircraft, and ships on going more towards an electric side of propulsion. And the last thing is that the lines of effort within the climate adaptation plan are looking towards a greater response to humanitarian assistance and disaster relief requirements outside of the United States and recognizing that's going to be a greater issue. But it kind of just stops there. And Matt and I totally agree. You got to start with a strong foundation domestically first before we reach out more towards the international community with concerns of climate insecurity. But we notice there is not really any current efforts towards those who may become vulnerable and who may fall prey to malign actors. Looking through each of the service branches, adaptation plans, there's maybe about a sentence to half a paragraph within all the documents that address the opportunities created by climate insecurity may be taken advantage of by malign actors. And it just kind of stops there. So that was the other gaps we have noticed as well. Thank you. It's good that you guys identified that and kind of bringing it out to the forefront that there is a gap in the DOD strategy, a little bit more focus on domestic issues, resiliency. But as you mentioned, the threats from climate insecurity, it's a systems approach. So everything's connected. So I'm glad you guys did that. So what would you recommend if you had an opportunity to sit in front of a COCOM commander and telling them this is what we recommend to be able to uh, defeat this problem? Again, from our advisor, Colonel Kivit, it kind of comes down to the feasibility and the appetite to, to execute. The more things you kind of have already existing systems aligned, the easier for us to be able to execute. It includes uh, organizations, lines of effort, funding, and execution on it. For the climate adaptation plan and its uh, lines of efforts, we don't want to change anything on there. We would like to add on to when the U.S. is ready to execute. So we came up with something while we were actually sitting in a cybersecurity strategy class uh, for DOD and came across a 2018 one on a line of effort called Defend Forward. I was like, well, that seems appropriate. And we're just kind of tweaking with a few words. We kind of came up with our own little statement for what defend forward within the climate security realm would look like. Something like so we will defend forward to disrupt or halt malicious governance competition or adversarial competition at its source, including activity that falls below the level of armed conflict. We will strengthen the security governance and the state resiliency to climate events that contribute to the current and future U.S. military advantages. We will collaborate with our interagency, industry, and international partners to advance our mutual interests. Now, we only replaced maybe like three or four words or added on to the current line of effort for the 2018 cybersecurity strategy. So something is already a concept that's already applied with cybersecurity strategy. And I also believe with U.S. Northcom also has like a defend forward strategy. So this had to be a top level down kind of execution. Three key things we kind of like identified that have this happen and deployed appropriately. You need to be able to identify where these issues are going to occur, how to forecast out and what issues can occur and, and have geopolitical ramifications. And then what do we mobilize both in funding and actual personnel on the ground to confirm, deny and execute a defend forward strategy? So we first kind of started at the top level. And to identify Matt and I, again, we don't want to reinvent the wheel, see if there's any kind of forecasting systems for climate and security and geopolitical issues. Well, we actually came across a podcast from DARPA talking about their AI-assisted climate tipping point model. And we reached out to DARPA back in February and 
talked about their program and how it helps to forecast these climate insecurity issues that could occur several years down the road to focus on another program they're working on called the World Modelers Program. This is not only like an AI program, it also has tons of experts and technicians on there to kind of overlap to see these issues. But with these two overlap, they can kind of help predict any climate insecurity and governance slash adversarial competition that could occur. And we pitched this to them and they said, yeah, this is very reasonable. Well, then we would have had to hand it off more in the U.S. policy realm of things. Go ahead and identifying what are the big priorities based on our own national security strategy and our own policies uh, moving forward as a nation and where we want to focus. Once the decisions are made, that can be handed off to the geographic combatant commands to go ahead and start executing from there. It could be established as a climate security working group or a climate security cell and start focusing on those areas specifically to kind of more focus narrowly down and get into the aegis. And then what can happen next from there is the efforts after delegated geographic combatant commands, they could confirm or deny these threats or vulnerabilities down at the tactical level as their areas of responsibility. For example, using some existing organizations and persisting with persistent access and placement. Well, we already have such an organization as our Special Operation Forces Civil Affairs, who have these persistent engagements across the world, who are we're always uh, working in overt conditions and constantly being requested by U.S. embassies and partner nation uh, governments across the world. Through these efforts, we can confirm or deny more of these political and social vulnerabilities in the area. And then we can take a hub and spoke approach with the civil affairs teams or civil military support elements, bring in climate scientists, civil engineers, and any other organizations within the realm to help solve these problems. Once it's confirmed and denied, we can go ahead and execute with the appropriate actions that need to take place. Next question comes on there is like, well, how are you going to fund this? Well, there's already on there the international approach with the Build Back Better World Initiative, which targets specifically on climate change and climate insecurity issues, and also the current Biden administration's prepared action plan, which also names climate insecurity issues and funding to go towards that. Also, just recently in this past week, talking with some peers, talking about more of the theater special operations commands are looking at having funding available towards climate change and climate insecurity issues and efforts going uh, towards that as well. So with this whole uh, line of effort and falling further into it, when developing and actually talking to DARPA, they actually mentioned that uh, U.S. AFRICOM has been looking at climate insecurity has impacts on the continent and actually had a whole symposium on it. And actually another uh, civil affairs officer, I believe in the reserves, published on the Civil Affairs Association journal site talking about issues within Africa and climate insecurity. And um, I'll forward you that link. That could be referenced on there, too. So it's something that's being talked about. All the pieces are there. They can all be aligned and executed and for that potential. And one last thing I'll add on to the identify portion is we actually had an opportunity to see some cross-pollination between the Naval Postgraduate School and the Middlebury Institute over in Monterey. And they came over as students and talked with one of them, and they talked about their capabilities in open source research. And they were actually able to forecast out 24 hours ahead of any other program on when North Korea was going to do a test of rocket and missile launches. And I asked him, like, would you be able to use the same thing in open source research to help forecast efforts of external state actors such as Russia and China funding through either military sales or through state-owned enterprises, economic statecraft on regions of interest and such. He's like, oh, and they responded back, that could be potentially something we could do. So open source research being another 
tool and the toolkit for the identify portion of a identify, prioritize, and mobilize. You packed in a lot in that answer there. I really like how you guys uh, took the Defend Forward LOE and modified it for climate insecurity. That's, that's great. Your recommendations from strategic level all the way down to tactical levels to the TSOC levels. I appreciate that. I think you guys are already providing a framework for people to kind of fall in and expand upon. It's not something they're starting from scratch now, but they've got something to be able to work off of. So looking at this topic of climate insecurity, what are some of the future challenges you see in trying to implement this? I think one of the things that we could see is just the fact that there is still a stigma that sort of you know, revolves around climate change. And it's trying to find ways that, you know, as we come across a, building that to where people have a better understanding of it and how it can play into geopolitical implications. So I think ultimately it's like finding that way to where you're know, looking at this as it's just another tool to where we can help us understand underlying issues that lead to competition, to crisis, to conflict across the competition continuum, and then how we can work towards building partnerships that allow us to compete against our adversaries. So I think it's, you know, looking at it from that standpoint. Yeah, and I'll add on to there is the, um, we briefed this a, a couple of times and uh, we had to be quite careful with our words at times because the term climate change is quite polarizing and sometimes it would stop a brief right in its tracks. I do believe if you were to control find through our 187 page document that within the actual written portions of it, climate change, I think it's mentioned probably no more than three times uh, because words do have meaning and history uh, behind them. Wow, that's good to know. And you're absolutely right. You know, I think we've seen in the last couple of years, the term climate change really being polarizing and politicized. Uh, but using the terms like climate threats and really focusing on the actual threat portion of this, I think is really important. And it's kind of educational too. And I, um, my, my assumption is it's something we also got to teach our partners uh, and our partner nations downrange uh, for them to kind of gain a uh, better appreciation of the threats. So talking about this and trying to learn and educate uh, people on climate threats or climate insecurities, you know, where can people go learn more about your research? Yeah, so we have a, a couple of publications. Of course, our thesis itself, all glorious 187 pages on it. I'll provide some links available for when you publish the uh, podcast on there directly from Naval Postgraduate School. It's open source, available to everyone. If you like a more condensed version, uh, we have on the Small Wars Journal, we publish about 1,600 words on there called The Blind Spot, how a gap in climate security strategy leads to opportunities for malign actors and strategic competition. We've also given a brief of our thesis back in November to a panel on the uh, challenges of climate security and governance competition. I can provide that link. And last, we also constructed a two-page info paper on the thesis as well to include heavily going into our line of effort of Defend Forward. Also within the realm of things, a great place if you want to learn more on it is the Center for Climate and Security and its director and anything written by her, uh, Dr. Aaron Sikorsky. We actually got a lot of information from her we had the opportunity to meet her at a symposium last month at Duke that was talking exactly about the same issues as we talked about for our thesis. And she has publications in the uh, War on the Rocks, she, uh, through BBC, uh, done tons of interviews and such. And she's a great resource that sees things also from the, more of the DoD lens. Thanks, Alex. You know, I'll make sure that we post these links on the 1CA podcast website for our listeners so they can download it. All right. So I think we're coming to the end here. So in closing, are there any other big takeaways for our listeners today? 
at our level, we're looking at those near-term consequences and how how best the U.S. can react in the emerging world of strategic competition, but also not forgetting the climate instability and still dealing with issues with non-state actors. And we're also not trying to solve climate change. There's plenty of efforts going on there, but there is that gap of what's happening in the meantime in the near future. Perfect, Matt. Yeah, just to expand upon what Alex was saying is everyone hears climate insecurity, climate change, and they're thinking, you know, 100 years from now, 50 years from now, but there are things that are happening in the near term. And and that's what we can really focus on. And that's how I think we can make some kind of impact as well as what will shape geopolitically in areas that have more concern and priority for us. Awesome. I agree. Alex, Matt, I want to thank you both for your time and your contribution to this ever-evolving topic of future threats and civil affairs, specifically you know, during this time here. So thanks again, and I'll see you guys on the Drop Zone. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. If you get a chance, please like and subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're interested in coming on the show or hosting an episode, email us at capodcasting at gmail.com. I'll have the email and CA Association website in the show notes. And now, most importantly, to those currently out in the field, working with a partner nation's people or leadership to forward U.S. relations, thank you all for what you're doing. Stay tuned for more great episodes, 1CA Podcast.